doubt. It's the word that creeps into our minds, makes us restless, gives us pause. At some point in your life, you might have said to yourself, I can't do this. This won't work. How am I going to accomplish this? Maybe on the other hand, you wondered, will things ever work out to my liking? Throughout my 25 plus years of working in higher education, I've had the chance to build relationships with all types of creatives. Each one of these people has a story to tell that will go deeper into their mindset as a creative. What hurdles did they overcome? How did they accomplish success? What driving factors led them to become the creatives they are? Each episode, I will take you inside the mind of a creative as we weave together stories that led to overcoming doubt, tapping into motivations, and ultimately unlocking the creative psyche. Hello and welcome to The Undaunted Creative, a podcast that takes a closer look into the story behind success in the creative fields. Today's guest, Louise McLaughlin, is a producer, journalist, and podcast host. She has worked with some of the largest media outlets in the world, including CNN, NBC News, and is currently a producer for Vice News. At Vice News, she has been responsible for producing riveting documentaries, which help to expose stories that range from fraudulent practices to the rise in hate groups around the world. Her journey has seen her travel overseas to the U.S. as a college student, find her true passion, and rather recently host and produce an extremely popular podcast series. That series, entitled You Look Like Me, details the process of finding out that she was donor-conceived, her personal quest to find and meet her biological father, and along the way speaking to others who were donor-conceived and telling their stories in a heartfelt and empathetic manner. Louise, welcome. Thank you. That's maybe the best introduction I've ever had. Can I bring you to job interviews going forward? (laughs) Thank you. Well, I can't wait to discuss the origin of the podcast and the success it has brought. But before that, I wanted to find out a bit more about growing up overseas. As someone who grew up in the States, the United Kingdom to me at an early age seems so far from reality, right? You know, kings, queens, and fantastic music. What was it like for you? Did the United States hold an early fascination? Um, yeah, so I moved about a little bit as a kid. So I was born in London. Um, I was here till I was six. And then I actually moved to Ireland where my mom is from. So I kind of got, yeah, a bit a bit of both growing up. But yeah, I think something about America is, you know, we grow up and we see it in all these movies. Um, and we feel like we know it, even though we don't. Like I moved to New York for a summer when I was 19 And I remember the feeling of just like walking down those streets and really feeling like, I don't know if you like call it main character syndrome, maybe just feeling like you're really in this really interesting place that you half know, but obviously don't. Um, And I think, yeah, just, you know, being the subject of so many movies and so many songs, I think it does hold a a certain fascination. Um, But that said, you know, I never thought that I would actually kind of get the opportunity to study there. Um, and then when the opportunity came along to spend half a, a year, um, one full semester in Colombia, I just had to jump at it. And it was so strange because, like I said, you know, New York is kind of the center of the media in many ways uh, when you're looking in. But Chicago had never been on my radar. And within weeks, you know, I landed in the middle of winter. I had never felt cold like it. Um, I'm used to kind of rain in um, in England and Ireland, but nothing like, you know, I don't think I'd even seen snow that deep before. Um, and I just fell in love with it. I just love the kind of Midwest, just support and friendliness. And I always say, you know, if, if New York is kind of your friend, your best friend, your party animal friend, Chicago is your family. 
I love that. And it sounds like it was just this idyllic setting for you too. You know, coming, coming to, to the States. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. And I, my dad had an uncle who I didn't even know existed until I got the opportunity to come and study. So, you know, not only was it just me kind of dipping my toe into a whole new city, a whole new state, um, I just, yeah, met this side of the family I never even knew existed. I found second cousins who were my age and just, yeah, made some amazing friends at Columbia and obviously, you know, got to got to do radio and got to meet you, Tom. So yeah, it's all great. Well, you know, while listening to your podcast, it was really wonderful to hear your mom talk about some of those early childhood memories, being clever, imaginative, caring about others. Looking back, do you feel that your childhood really helped to shape your career pursuits? Yeah, I mean, so I I actually wanted to be an actress when I was younger, and I wanted to be an actress for a very long time. And it was only when I went to choose what I wanted to study in university that I kind of, I don't know, I just did this pivot. And in my head, for whatever reason, you know, obviously, you know, media facing out and kind of being the face of something and interacting with people and interviewing people and sometimes performing, you know, you know yourself. Yes, we try and be as organic and ourselves as possible, but there is a certain kind of, whether it's just putting on a voice that we use for radio specifically, or just performing slightly, I think there's like definitely a crossover. For some reason, the kind of pivot to journalism made a lot of sense for me at the time, turning away from acting. Um, And what I think I've learned now is that actually kind of the amount that you insert of yourself into a story is, you know, very little. Uh, It's more kind of taking other people's stories and being able to share those. So I think for me, the podcast that I did around a year ago was kind of my first time really inserting myself into a story. And actually I found it very odd. I didn't think I would, but obviously it's quite a, um, you know, a sensitive topic. It's quite close to my heart. And obviously it wasn't just telling a story. It was discovering this story as I went. So I started it not actually knowing who my biological father was. And then incredibly, as I, produced and hosted this podcast the clues just fell into place and it wasn't because I was doing the podcast it was just this serendipitous just merging of coincidence that meant that as I recorded this he popped up. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't have happened at a better time. It was it was really bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, you you put yourself out there. So at 13, you find out your donor conceived and your mom sits you down. Before that moment, what was running through your mind? Like, did they say, you know, we've got something really serious to talk about here? Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, when you're a kid and you have that like intuition, you know that the adults are about to say something serious, right? And they kind of, I think they nudge the conversation. So, you know, it's about like, you need to sit down and shut up and listen. Um, But it's kind of a funny story. And I left it out of the podcast because it's kind of not really relevant. But my parents had gone on a trip um, over that weekend, I guess. And my cousin had been babysitting me and my cousin was a bit older. And I don't know how it came up in conversation, but I was talking to her about the age that my mum was. And my cousin was like, your mom is not that age. Your mom's older than that. I was like, no, she's not. That's crazy. Why would you say that? She's always told me she's this age. 
my cousin was like, no, she's like 10 years older than that. I was like, oh my goodness. Mm, I don't think so. My mom would never lie to me. So I already had this like feeling of like deep betrayal. I was like waiting for my parents to get home. And they had just coincidentally decided that this was the day they told me they had gone on this trip, obviously had this discussion in the car together and gone, you know, we'll get home and we'll tell Louise the truth that she is donor conceived. So they get in and I'm already kind of up in arms and kind of annoyed. And I'm like, I found out that you've been lying to me this whole time. And they're going, how the hell did she know? (laughs) And then, you know, mom probably had this moment of relief when she realized it's actually, you know, I've found out she's been kind of, she thought joking about her age this whole time. And I thought lying. And I remember, you know, just thinking like, this is the ultimate betrayal. How could you? And then she kind of sits me down. She's like, actually, there's more. <laughs> so it went from mum's a little older than she let on to actually you don't know who your biological father is. <laughs> well, you know, I think these shifts are really huge in the psyche for a young child. And I can relate. For example, I lost my father at a really young age. And I think as children, we learn to bury these feelings and, and sometimes do a lot of good acting. So at the end of the day, it's in the back of our mind. And I was wondering, how did you cope with the news as as you were growing up now, because this was, you know, brand new to you at 13 years of age. To be honest, I don't think I did. <laughs> I don't think I kept well at all. Um, you know, I, I had that conversation with my parents and I guess I, I misremembered, but dad did, cho- did join in the conversation at one point. And um, I just saw that it was very upsetting for him. And I think, you know, he was always a man who was very stoic and never cried and, I saw him cry this time and I, in my kind of teenage mind, I went, well, this is about me and my relationship with dad. And this is kind of pretty much the first time I've seen him cry. So therefore this conversation about us really upsets him. Um, And I kind of thought it was my fault in a lot of ways. And I just made that decision to not bring it up anymore because I just didn't want to, you know, inflict that on him. And then it got to the point where I think, when you keep those secrets or when you don't have those discussions as a child or as a teenager, you really bury them to a point where you do question, you go, is this even real? Have I made this up? And I, you know, as I said, I wanted to be an actress. I was very, you know, I don't know if attention seeking is the right word, but I did like that focus. I did like thinking, oh, you know, the, you know, focus is on me. I'm so special. And I really did think, God, have I made this up just to feel a little different, just to feel kind of shinier than everyone else? And then I think I felt kind of ashamed of making up such a weird thing. I was like, why would I want to distance myself from my dad? What an awful kind of lie to tell myself. And it was only a few years later then I kind of finally got the confidence up to talk to a boyfriend of mine at the time. And um, yeah, just saying it out loud, it was liberating. It was almost like a movie moment where you were like, oh my God, like everything clicked back into place, all these things that I'd been pushing away. But I think that just kind of kickstarted this journey then of going, okay, this is real. What are the next steps? You know, do I continue to sit on this and push this down and pretend that it's not real like I have been doing? Or do I start to answer the questions that have been bubbling away in my mind for years? And I think just, you know, as a journalist now, I think it was kind of always obvious that I was definitely going to want to track down those answers. You know, being an only child, did you also start to wonder and and think, maybe I'm really not an only child? The sibling thing really didn't come until later. Um, I moved from Ireland, actually shortly after I had left um, Columbia for my semester, I would have moved back to London. And 
I guess, you know, when I found this out, there weren't any support groups, social media wasn't really a thing. But when I moved to London, I would have been maybe 21, 22. And there were support groups. And I was like, well, I'll just like, you know, go along and kind of meet people. I hadn't met anyone else who was donor conceived probably at this point. So I went along and everyone was talking about wanting to find siblings. And it just, that day just blew my mind because it had never even occurred to me. But then even just like on a mathematical scale, it made more sense because there's only one bio dad out there, right? But there's there could be a lot more siblings. And also he might not want to be found, but they might, you know, they might be putting themselves forward. They're the ones who are in my exact shoes. They might want the same answers that I want. And I want everyone to listen to the podcast because it is wonderful. Six episodes. It's a great series. Um, And one of the things that really resonated with me was the fact that you had all these people from different backgrounds. And how did that come into play? Were there some people that maybe weren't as interested in being involved and were maybe going to be off record? Or did you find that most of the guests were like, you know, I absolutely want to tell my story. I want to help out in in really um, discussing these feelings. Yeah, so the whole thing was kind of sparked by an article that I wrote. Um, So again, you know, as I said, I kept this as a secret. And yes, I decided I wanted to track down those questions and those people who might be related to me, but it was never something I wanted to do publicly or even broadcast to friends or family. Um, I did a lot of DNA tests that came back with no no matches whatsoever. And then four years ago, I matched with my half-sister. So that was my first kind of ping on the DNA sites. And we just hit it off so well you know she's eight months older than me we're so close in age again like I said grew up you know born in London but I grew up in Ireland spent a lot of time not enough time but a lot of time in America and had really just got back to London when I found this sibling who also happened to be in London but we met up and we just kind of moved at the same pace you know I'll always say it's like going on the worst first date of your life because you can't get rid of them. (laughs) Don't get on with them. They're still your half sister forever. You know, you can't just say that was a bad day. Let's move on. And you put so much more hope and expectation into it. You know, I just desperately wanted it to work. And I just had this moment a few months after going, you know, I, if I ever get married, if I have these big life events, I don't want to do that and invite her and say, oh yeah, that's my friend in the corner. You know, I want to proudly turn around and say, this is, and I, I call her my sister as opposed to my half sister. I want to go, this is my sister, Jess, you know? And I was kind of stuck then because I was like, well, I'm, this isn't really out to the family. It's not out to friends, but I am a journalist and this has happened to me. And, you know, now I've covered the topic more. I actually realized my story is pretty unremarkable when you compare it to the crazy, crazy stories that we cover on the podcast. But at the time, you know, going through it, I was like, this is a really big thing. So I wrote this article and it just blew up. Um, I got so much feedback from all around the world from people saying, you know, you've summed up what I could never put into words. And shortly after that, I wrote an article for Vice News where I kind of did the same thing, but I told five different people's stories through the context of the article. And kind of two things happened. One, I realized that these people have incredible stories and they're all so diverse. It's not just retelling my story again and again, you know, and you'll hear from the podcast, it's the kid with 200 plus siblings. It's the woman who finds out that she doesn't know who her dad is when she's 56. It's the person who has been going to the same school as their sibling and not realized until they're 22. You know, these things are insane. So, yeah, I mean, the the response was just great. And, you know, I still do get people who say, yes, I want to speak out, but 
my family doesn't know, so I can't. But I feel like actually even in the three years since my article came out and I got that response and now the podcast has come out, I feel like more people are actually willing to speak on it than aren't willing, which is within three years, an amazing shift. Um, And I don't know whether part of that is now I have this kind of wealth of journalism behind me on this topic specifically. So I've kind of won over a bit of trust. I don't know whether it's because the conversation is changing, but I mean, it's really encouraging either way. Well said. And we talked a little bit about Chicago and New York. Um, so so what was sort of the reasoning behind coming to the States? Um, was it more about networking? Was it just like, this is what I really want to do? I want to get into one of the large markets? Um, no, I mean, it was not career based at okay. all at that okay. point. I think, I think I was just, you know, I was just a college kid. And yes, obviously, I, you know, I'd chosen what I wanted to do. And yes, I kind of had eyes on it. But I think I came to Columbia in my third year of college. I think that was the year I went, you know what, I'm going to start taking this really seriously and I am going to knuckle down. But I was still enjoying the college experience, you know. But what Columbia did do and what you were actually a part of is it got me my first internship, you know, and it got me that hands-on experience. And I worked at Rivet Radio um, as an intern and got to voice things and got to write my own pieces. And then I got to return to my college in Ireland for my final year. And I really felt actually that I was stepping back with, you know, a raised platform of experience. No one else who had, you know, and this isn't anything against that course in Ireland, but just the way you guys do it, you know, it was more hands-on. There were more modules to choose from. I could really pinpoint what I wanted to do. And I really enjoyed that process actually, because we don't get that at the college I came from in Dublin. We don't have that wealth of modules to choose from yeah, I I genuinely, I don't know if I'd be where I am without it. And that's like genuine. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, and it really shows the, um, you know, the fact that you are saying to yourself as a young student, like, I want to get out there. I want to go to different markets. I want to experience um, something different. And I also want to gain that knowledge. Um, I did hear from a lot of students who have um, gone through the program, who come back um, you know, to the States. And one of the things that they do mention is the fact that, you know, this is a great platform for them to to really build upon, whether it's the radio station or being involved with, you know, a college newspaper or a television station. It, it, it's a little bit different how the, the teaching uh, curriculum is compared to maybe other countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, what, I, what I thought was really great you know, in a classroom where you have people from all different backgrounds and really different interests, you know, people are very clear with where they want to go. I think, you know, even in my class, we had some people who really wanted to do hard news, some people who wanted to do doc, TV, radio, some people wanted to DJ. And all of that was kind of nurtured and all of that was allowed. And that's what I really, really liked. It wasn't kind of like, well, you know, you're in you're in college to do hard news. Like it was let's really play to our strengths and let's play to our personalities. Um, And I just think that's a really nurturing and realistic way to do it. You know, we're not all going to become news anchors. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk a little bit about sort of, if we want to call it an application process for like CNN and NBC News. What does that look like? How does that sort of come into, uh, come to fruition for you? Those, those, you know, two major networks. So I think internships are so invaluable. I mean, that's how I got my foot in the door at CNN. And I guess there's two points on internships. It's one, they are just 
amazing to get you through the door, to get you into an office, talking to people, showing your worth and learning so much. I think, you know, when I started at CNN, I found it quite intimidating. And I don't know if I should have been more honest with myself about that at the time. I kind of went, you know, suck it up, Louise, you can do this, get on with it. And I think I should have allowed myself to be a bit intimidated. You know, it's I'm just out of college and it's not one of the best known, you know, my, my Dublin um, college, it's not one of the best known journalism schools in the world, you know. And I guess, yeah, I should have allowed myself to be a bit intimidated. Like, that's okay. Just go in and do your best. But, you know, obviously it went okay and I got kept on um, and I did a number of roles around the newsroom. I was kind of, I kind of made that a priority. So I wanted to be on the news desk. I wanted to be in programming, which is kind of helping the live show goes going out. So I was a writer for a while as a producer, which involves going into the um the studio and actually seeing that live show go out and you're kind of in the anchor's ear and making sure all the correspondents are lined up. So if you do well under pressure, that is a great job to go into. But yeah, it's very, very stressful. As well for me, the second part of kind of going in as an intern is kind of knowing whether you're still seen as an intern and when it's time to move on, right? So like I said, I was at CNN for, I think, five years But in my head, I was kind of like, do they still see me kind of as an intern? And I think once you get to a certain level, you need to make that decision of, you know what, this is what I can do. I know what I can do. Am I going to get the opportunity here to progress or am I still kind of being pigeonholed? And I decided that I wanted slightly different opportunities. So I, while I was working still at CNN and obviously, you know, sometimes when you apply for a job, if you have a job, it puts you in a more confident place. Um, so yeah, I applied for NBC and was lucky enough to get that job. And yeah, I mean, you, yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you, you know, now with Vice News, I look at this and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, covering and producing some of these stories, it could potentially put you in harm's way. Where, what's the thought process behind that when you are, you know, you're getting ready to interview some of these people? Are you going more in person? I know obviously with COVID, there, that might not be happening, but how do you, again, I want to go back to trust. How do you gain the trust and how long is that contact thread where you've got a contact and you've got to maybe go through four or five people to get closer to that, to the, to the ultimate person who maybe is running this hate group? Firstly, I think you kind of touched on how do you kind of stay upbeat and not disillusioned, right? I think anyone kind of following the news closely at the moment is probably feeling pretty disillusioned. Like it's a joke at the top of my Twitter, but says something along the lines of, you know, every morning I wake up and I try to figure out whether to be stressed over the rise of the far right, climate change, the pandemic, or all three. And that's kind of how I feel every day. Um, But the thing is I try and strike a balance when I do pieces on the rise of the far right, for example, you know, yes, you do talk to people involved in these groups, but we did a piece, for example, this the one that comes to mind in Poland. It's kind of, there's an episode on how the government is weaponizing the far right. So they don't want LGBT people to have certain rights. Um, and then there's been, you know, this pushback against women's rights in the country as well and a few politicians have literally turned around and kind of pretty much whenever there's a woman's protest the government will kind of say you know do what needs to be done and it's kind of seen as a message for the far right to go out and interfere with the protest but 
at the same time, I will speak to activists for the same episode who could have left the country, you know, LGBT activists who have been in fear for their lives and their safety on some of these marches. Like they can't even go on a pride parade without getting physically attacked. They've had, you know, bottles of urine thrown at them while on a pride parade, like marching peacefully. And these are people who could have left this country and could have gone somewhere where they're accepted with open arms and they've chosen not to because they fundamentally believe that LGBT people and women in Poland should have these rights. But they're they're the interviews that you step away from and kind of feel like there's a bit of hope. (laughs) And, you know, there's always a good guy like facing down a bad guy. In terms of, you know, personal safety, yes. Um, So everything is kind of remote. So I'll kind of literally just produce remotely, just like we're speaking right now. Um, But that doesn't mean that people don't have the opportunity to try and kind of dox you online or direct negative attention towards you. So I have had instances where I've reached out to people and this isn't just kind of hate groups, you know, this is, you know, across the board, actually. Um, If people don't like the tone of your interview or if they don't like that you've reached out and maybe you've got an email signature at the bottom of your email with your email address or worse, your phone number, those things can get published online. And that's not a pleasant experience. You know, I've never been fearful for my personal safety, but it definitely, you know, you have to lock your social media accounts for a day or two, for sure. Wow. So as we wrap things up, I want to ask you two last questions. I always tell this to students work-life balance. What does that look like for you right now, especially during the pandemic, but how are you able to balance? Mm, I'm still looking to find someone who can tell me. Okay, got it. I think we all deal with that, that, that difficulty of trying to sit, you know, turn the clock off and just say, we're done, you know, for the day. Yeah. I mean, I have like a million thoughts, literally like bombarding my brain right now in response to that question. And I'm trying to choose which one to go with. I think in journalism and in media, there's so much competition, right? There's so much pressure to go a little further, to get the scoop, to get the story, to get that last quote, to get that last video into your documentary, whatever it is, you know, to be the last one in the office. And I think sometimes at these big companies, that's, you know, even more visible and you really can burn out. And I think that's something that I've become aware of and I'm trying to be a bit more human about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you burn out, you're not really good to anyone and especially yourself. But yeah, I, you know, I will say I have an incredible boss at Vice News and she kind of says, you know, mental health comes first. Um, We're working through a crazy, crazy time right now. Um, And we're working on some really hard subjects. You know, we've had the pandemic and then obviously when you're across hate groups, some of my colleagues, um, past and present, you know, we have to look at really awful videos and photos, you know, if there's a terror attack, we have to be the ones to verify that sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. And yes, work-life balance is important anyway. But when you're dealing with really, really heavy things, I think it's just really important to like continuously check in with yourself. And exactly like you said, when you're at home, just like sometimes I literally turn off the laptop and just kind of spin on my swivel chair. And then I'm just like facing the wall. And I'm like, well, what now? Um, so yeah, definitely just 
get out of the house but i i don't want to give too much advice on it because i don't i don't think i follow my own advice unfortunately well, well either do i and and I, th- I think the thing is we're always saved by some great tv shows whether it's you know the newest program on hbo or netflix or what have you we've got so many choices um but i find amazing just to say like some of my colleagues literally sign off a day of working in news and then they're like oh my god i saw this great documentary about you know this like activist back in the third and I'm like I can't, how can you do that like my brain doesn't work that way I literally I need marshmallow tv after I stop <laughs> otherwise my brain would never start the next day yeah well let's talk about success here last question you look like me wildly successful on apple talk a little bit about the numbers with that and then season number 2 is that already sort of in the process of being developed um yeah. So yeah, numbers wise, I mean, I think it was 60, number 69 in America, number 10 in the UK and number one in Ireland, which is amazing. Um, and it still kind of holds those spots actually, which is remarkable. You know, people do still kind of dip in, even though I'm not actively pushing it out. And as you said, you know, there's so few episodes that it's not kind of always dragging people in currently because there's not new ones landing. So it's really amazing to see people still coming back to it. But there is season two in the works. I think it's a good follow-on question from the work-life balance because I just need to be realistic that right now the time is not there. Um, but, you know, it's it's written. It's there, ready to go when I have the time, when I have the energy. Um, and the stories are just, you know, I'm... I, re- I have to tell them, basically. They are so hugely important. Um, there's stories around fertility fraud, which is, you know, doctors impregnating women with their own sperm instead of the sperm of a donor. There's, again, you know, I want to touch on people who have unwillingly been going to the same school as someone they're related to. I mean, there's six solid, solid episodes there, and each one, I think, is just as kind of shocking as the next one. So, it will happen. It will be good. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> well, it was sort of like waiting for succession, right? Season number three, and it came out, and it's so worthwhile. And I feel the same thing with You Look Like Me. We're going to be just, you know, we're waiting in the wings for it to come out. And I'm, I'm so excited to listen to season two. And if you haven't listened to season one, definitely listen to it. Six episodes, You Look Like Me, find it on Apple. And Luis McLaughlin, producer, journalist, and podcast host, I can't thank you enough for joining me for Undaunted Creative. Thank you so much. It was fun. You've been listening to the Undaunted Creative Podcast. Undaunted Creative is a production of WCRX-FM in collaboration with the Career Center of Columbia College Chicago. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ColumCareer. That's C-O-L-U-M-C-A-R-E-E-R. This episode was produced by Matthew Byrne. To hear more episodes of the Undaunted Creative, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tom Joyce. Thanks for listening.